Production support for Earth Eats comes from Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at bloomingfoods.coop. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at personalfinancialservices.net. From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. This week on the show, we talk with Chef Adrian Lipscomb, founder of the 40 Acres and a Mule Project, with a goal of purchasing land for black farming and foodways. And we revisit a conversation with farm loan officer Kathleen Walters. It was part of our series, Have Sheep, Will Farm, about a young couple searching for their farm home. We talk about the USDA's history with racially discriminatory loan practices and about the importance of building a solid business plan for farming success. That's all coming up, so stay with us. Renee Reed has news. Hi, Renee. Hi, Kate. Our news this week comes from Harvest Public Media. Small communities in the Midwest are at higher risk for having nitrate levels in drinking water that could threaten public health. That's the finding of a new report from the Environmental Working Group, which analyzed water data from 10 states. Nebraska is one of the five Midwest farm states which reported elevated nitrates in many rural communities. The city of Hastings, Nebraska, has built a system that removes nitrates before they enter the drinking water supply. Environmental Director Marty Stange says the innovative system is working well. Stange says... Preventing the nitrates from ever getting to the water is far cheaper than building a system to remove the pollutant once it's there. Nitrate levels above 10 milligrams per liter have long been associated with blue baby syndrome. More recent research has shown a correlation with certain cancers and birth defects even at more than 3 milligrams per liter, which is what the EPA considers naturally occurring. The southern Great Plains have been facing dry conditions and lack of rain. These conditions are getting worse and causing something known as a flash drought. Experts say this kind of drought appears and spreads rapidly like a flood. Gary McManus is an Oklahoma state climatologist. Farmers in the Oklahoma panhandle have especially felt the impact. Uh, We're hearing very dire reports uh, from agricultural producers out in that part of the state. Um, Most of the dry land crops uh, failed, the wheat Um, cattle sell-offs, no pasture to speak of. McManus says regions of Kansas, Texas, and central Oklahoma did receive a few inches of rain in mid-June, and that could provide some relief to farmers. Forecasters say there may be more on the way, but McManus says it's still not enough to end the drought, just slow it down and lessen its intensity. Thanks to Seth Bodine and Amy Mayer of Harvest Public Media for those reports. For Earth Eats News, I'm Renee Reed.
I've been hearing about creative projects from individuals and businesses raising awareness about structural racism and raising cash for Black-led organizations such as Black Lives Matter and the National Bailout Fund. One such fundraising project is Bakers Against Racism. I heard about it through local bakeries Muddy Fork, Rainbow, and Piccoli Dolce. The idea came from three chefs in DC who spread the word initially through Instagram. The process is simple. Bakers of all levels, home bakers and professionals, would sell 150 baked goods during the week of Juneteenth and donate the proceeds to the organization of their choice supporting Black Lives. Muddy Fork chose to donate the funds from the sale of 150 croissants to a project called 40 Acres and a Mule. This initiative is the brainchild of Chef Adrian Lipscomb of the Uptown Cafe and Bakery in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Her goal is to raise $100,000 to purchase land for black farming. The first phase was to raise 50 grand by Juneteenth, a goal she surpassed thanks to supporters like Muddy Fork Bakery and other organizations and individuals around the country. I spoke with Adrienne Lipscomb and asked her how the idea came to her. She's a black restaurant owner, and this was during the time of protest and social uprising directly after George Floyd's murder by a police officer in Minneapolis. People started trying to give me money, especially white women were trying to give me money for no reason. And they were wanting to Venmo me money <laughs> or they were sending me checks. And I didn't know what for. And I'm not the type of person just to take your money without having a good cause or it was going to go to something. And I woke up one morning and say, what we're going to do is we're going to focus this and we're going to buy land. It just became really important if I was working in Black foodways to look at Black farmers also. In, in my area, there's really none oh, close to me in the Cooley Regional Valley area, but it's surrounded by organic farms. We're really close to Organic Valley. It's also known as Organic Valley. When I learned more about Chef Lipscomb, it surprised me that she would choose to take on a project of this scale at this time. I am the owner and chef of Uptown Cafe in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Her restaurant remains open through the COVID-19 restrictions, but they've switched exclusively to takeout, delivery, and curb service. And being in Wisconsin, we were allowed to open up. Our shelter in place was turned over by the Supreme Court. We did not open our door. The health department had no rules and regulations for us. I was not going to open the door without a plan. With COVID-19 cases rising, she doesn't plan to open anytime soon. A couple of other things to know about Adrian Lipscomb. In 2019, she was one of seven chefs chosen to craft a Heritage Juneteenth celebration dinner at the James Beard House in New York City. She has a background in urban planning. And she has a family. I have four kids. I have three under three. Um, my youngest one is four. Four months. <laughs> so I had a baby. I had a baby right before our shelter in place. I had a baby early February, first week of February. My eldest is 14 and my youngest is four months. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little nuts, but <laughs> I'd rather be busy <laughs> than sitting here. Yeah. The details of the project are still taking shape, but these are her stated goals. To purchase at least 40 acres of land for black farming, to guarantee farm-to-table resources for the food industry, 
to provide an outlet for black foodways, and to establish a safe haven to secure the legacy of black foodways. Her project aims to not only purchase land and support black farming and foodways, but to also raise awareness about the history of black land ownership and the systems in place that have denied land to black farmers and prevented black families and black communities from building wealth. She's using her Instagram platform and this fundraising effort to educate followers on the history of black farming. In her daily posts, she offers information and historical context on black farming traditions, important figures like Fannie Lou Hamer and George Washington Carver, black origins of sustainable farming practices, and the story behind the name of her project. 40 Acres and a Mule is what the federal government promised freed slaves in January of 1865 as a form of reparations. Land in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida was confiscated from Confederate landowners to be distributed among former slaves. By fall of that same year, the order was overturned and the land was returned to its previous owners. So that's another thing of, you know, telling that history of where 40 acres and a mule came from and that there was, you know, given of land. Their land was physically given and then land was physically taken away and taken away by force. That 40 acres and a mule was supposed to be that opportunity to start your own life. Many black farmers ended up sharecropping. Some owned land but struggled to hang on to it or to pass it on to their heirs. In the 1960s, some black farmers formed cooperatives. I'm thinking of Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farm in Mississippi and the New Communities Collective in Georgia. The USDA and lending institutions have a checkered history of unfair lending practices. Black farmers weren't getting loans to to buy their seed or to buy uh, machinery. Or if they would get loans, it would be less than half than what they asked for to be able to take care of their land or their loans were given to them late into the season. So sometimes they would even miss the start of the season. There was a big case against that um, because of the racial profiling from, from banks. And that's how we end up where we are today. Black farmers make up just 1.4% of farmers in the U.S. However, there does seem to be a growing movement of black farmers and a surging interest in regaining farmland for people of color. You might recall our interview with Leah Penniman of Soulfire Farm. Adrian Lipscomb plans to be a part of that movement. She describes her vision as a sanctuary to hold the history, food, and stories of black culture in food and farming. And when it comes to reparations, Adrian Lipscomb is thinking beyond agriculture. Trying to understand, like, in 20 years, what will this look like for us, you know, for the, you know, there's more than just me out here, but for us that are asking for land, when you talk about reparations, what does reparations really look like? Because um, my background is in architecture and city planning, and we're talking about affordable housing. And I'm like, is affordable housing reparations? Is this something that we need to think beyond the 40 acres? Because maybe 40 acres to us now means a home. That was Adrian Lipscomb, chef and owner of the Uptown Cafe and Bakery in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and founder of the 40 Acres and a Mule Project, which is currently running a GoFundMe campaign to purchase land for black farming and foodways. Find more on our website, eartheats.org. 
After a short break, we'll talk with a farm loan officer, Kathleen Walters. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com and Blooming Foods Co-op Market, providing local residents with locally sourced food since 1976. Owned by over 12,000 residents in Monroe County and beyond. More at BloomingFoods.coop. Last year, we launched a series about a young couple getting started in farming. You might remember Brett and Lauren. They have a flock of Jacob sheep, a small breed with long horns and a distinctive voice. Their flock got started from a wedding present. Yep, they asked for farm animals. They got some farm animals. The thing was, they didn't have land of their own. They were renters, which meant they ended up moving their expanding flock from one farm to another, in the back of a minivan, no less. And when the second lease was coming to an end, they decided to try for some land of their own. In the first episode, we heard about Lauren and Brett's connection with the work of farming, their motivations and their dreams for Three Flock Farm. And they talked about some land they had set their sights on and their application for an FSA loan. This week, we're giving a second listen to part two of our series, Have Sheep, Will Farm. We speak with Kathleen Walters for more insight into the FSA loan process. The interview touches on some of the discriminatory lending practices we talked about with Adrian Lipscomb. I'm Kathleen Walters, and I work with the Farm Service Agency, and I'm a farm loan officer. FSA is, we are an agency of the USDA, and our, we're farm, the Farm Service Agency. Our focus is a little different than a bank's. We're, our programs are designed to help small farmers get started or young farmers get started where they may not have the equity that they uh, necessarily need for a commercial bank. We do a lot of smaller loans. We have a microloan program that's under $50,000. A lot of times commercial banks have a hard time making that profitable so, so that we're kind of that pickup area. We don't compete with banks. If you are strong enough to get a loan from a local bank, then that's where we send you. On the whole, all of our interests are lower than commercial banks. We have a lending limit to $300,000 for uh, farm ownership and then a separate $300,000 for like equipment and uh, let's say to put your crop in for the year. Kathleen works with all kinds of farmers, but she specializes in small-scale operations and specialty crops, organic farming, vegetables and fruits, maybe some aquaculture, or even flowers. 
I asked Kathleen about the specific requirements for these types of loans. We have to be able to collateralize it. We are still under that umbrella, and managerial experience is important. We we want to see that you've you've thought it through, and maybe you've done it at a small scale. For instance, I have one up in my area that does uh, pumpkins, and they started with six acres, and they worked the bugs out of it, and uh, tried to figure out we're ready to go to close to 50 acres, and then they needed us. And so then we can pick up, we do an annual operating line for them. That's where we kind of come in, where you've tried this on your own and on a little small scale. One of my, the couples that we closed alone with last winter were doing it in their backyard. You know, they were raising vegetables and selling them at the farmer's market, and they were ready to move and have a big enough place where they could do it more full-time. It's not full-time right now. They both still have jobs, but they're working towards that. That's what their ultimate goal is, and that's kind of what we look at. The The most important part is if you have an idea about it, come sit down with a loan officer, even if it's two years before you really are ready to do it, and kind of work through, well, here's what we can do in the, in the meantime to make it, uh, you know, fly through better. <laughs> right. And like you're saying, if they have a chance to try it out for themselves, both to see, do I even like doing this? Right. Can we do it? What all's involved? Because when you're just thinking about it, you don't really know what it's like. Yes. Right. And uh, what kind of problems you might encounter. And You know, organic farming and a lot of the uh, producing fruits and vegetables is a lot of hard work. And you can tell that the people that I work with are truly uh, committed to it and have a passion for it. And that goes a long way to knowing that this is, they're going to have setbacks. Everybody has setbacks. But the thing is that we have a plan. We did one for camel milk. <laughs> So we are, we, you know what, my feeling is if you're passionate about it and it's feasible and it's agriculture, then we've crossed the biggest hurdles right there. So I've been hearing that uh, the average age of farmers in, in the United States is around 60. There is an aging farming population. And so as part of what's happening with these government programs is to encourage young farmers to get started and try to move some of those barriers out of the way? Right. Uh, And it does do that. And and most of my borrowers are are fairly young. So you serve beginning farmers, but also can help if somebody, like you said, gets in a tight spot. So they may be an existing farmer, but They've, you know, had a bad season or need some new equipment because something has failed or whatever, and they they need a a loan. Or there could be this one piece of land that came up for sale right with them that may not ever come up for sale again that's perfect for them, but they're not quite financially where they need to be at that point in time. Lauren and Brett went to talk to Kathleen about the first piece of land they found. They weren't able to agree on a price with that seller, so it fell through. They are a young couple that I know that they have had a real passion for farming when they got married five years or so ago. They asked for agricultural wedding gifts, and they, they got some, some livestock for that. They received some sheep, and they started to build their herd, and they have been, over the years, building their, their herd up, and now they're ready to, to actually sell. They've been kind of trading up to this point their their meat for some other things, you know, and now they're ready to, to go forward. And they, they uh, put the time and effort in to come up with a business plan. And plans always change, but you, you need to have one, you know. And uh, 
So they found this other piece of property up near Ellettsville and was actually a better fit for them. So waiting was a good thing. And uh, we haven't completely got the loan finished, but we're getting there. <laughs> so so uh, we're in the, it's approved, but we just have a, I say that approval's one spot, then there's a marathon to closing <laughs> because there's a lot of financial things that have to happen in the background that a lot of times people don't see. And uh, I, but but there are a couple that are excited about good quality food, and they're in the perfect area for that. And I'm confident they will be a success. So uh, uh, they're just real good people, and and we still we still uh, lend on people's character also. I mean, that that's part of the decision-making. There's some things that are very strict about what we do, and then there's some things that we are, are interpretation and... Mm-hmm. and Subjective. And- yeah. When when someone's got that passion, you, you do your best to work forward with them. Mm-hmm. That actually just brings up a, another question for me. Um, when you talk about some of those subjective areas, I know that the USDA has a history of racial discrimination in in its farm lending programs. And there have been a couple of lawsuits that that were settled. So I was just wondering if you could speak to that at all and what you know about it. Well, apparently it did happen. And, you know, just like our past, some of the things we're kind of embarrassed about. And it was more in the South. I can't say that it wasn't here in Indiana also. But uh, I think getting the right people on the ground uh, sorts that problem out. You know, we they have a lot of racial diversity training, but I think you just have to have the right people that that see each person as an individual, and uh, you know that will get sorted out. But a lot of the little behind the scenes things we do is because of those lawsuits, so that we're sure that we are not being discriminatory. So I asked what kinds of changes they had made within the agency. Apparently, they were not giving applications to people just turning them away. We take an application from anyone who wants to give us one, and then we give them a receipt for it. It's called a receipt for service, so that that we have documentation that shows that, yes, we took their application and we legitimately looked at it, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and they have that proof, right, too, because right. they've been given a receipt. Right. What kinds of assurances were you able to offer to Lauren as a black woman who is applying for a loan like this? Well, the funny thing is I didn't see her as a black woman. Oh. <laughs> I just – just all I saw was someone who was really invested in this. And uh, we do have different pots of money that we pull out of. The Congress gives us a certain amount of funds to work with. And if those funds are gone – there's for veterans and for the underserved uh, population. There's a little extra pot of money there. So, so even if that's gone, we may still be able to roll that through. I know that Lauren told me when she came into the office that you said something to her about about the history of racial discrimination and that that was not going to be an issue or something. She said she just felt really reassured and, and comfortable with you that you were willing to mention that and to let her know. Well, I, I may have said something, but I just remember what she said when she left. She goes, I feel really good about this meeting. <laughs> I said, well, I'm glad, you know, and uh, and I was excited to uh, to help them because it's it's kind of 
uh, from my position, I was a I was a hog farmer for thirty years before I we retired our hog farm and I went to work for uh, the farm service agency. So I have that understanding about working for yourself, and uh, and and having your own goals and visions, you know, not someone above you setting those forth and, and you're kind of responsible for it. And when I see them, I get excited for them also. I mean, it has to work and I do my work to make sure that it does, but uh, I, I just get real excited for them. I wanted to hear more about some of the specific requirements for these types of loans. To get a farm ownership loan, you have to have three years of farming experience and while uh, Brett and Lauren started small, they did build that. It's also interesting to me because from what I understand, they didn't even know about the FSA program when they started. And so they were kind of building this this experience without realizing that it was going to help them in the future when they did decide to go forward with a more solid plan. Right. Sometimes I think we're the the best kept secret. Do you feel like the program is being taken advantage of in, in the area, and do you, does all the money usually get lent? Not usually lately. Mm-hmm. But that's good to know that, like, there's money out there, and right. people need to just know about it and find out if it's a good fit for them. Right. So uh, people don't know, but usually if we get into one farmer's market where one person is, it's invariably that we'll get more people from it because – Unlike a lot of other businesses, it seems like to me that at farmers markets they help one another a little more than mm-hmm. than they're not quite as uh, cutthroat. One of the other requirements for FSA lending is that you need to have a purchase agreement with the seller before you apply for the loan. Brett and Lauren came and talked to me before they did, which is what I suggest. If you have uh, some type of idea of what you want to do. Come talk to us, you know, just just kind of find out the navigation of it first. And so when you do get that, you can go forward because part of our application process, unlike a lot of banks, is that we actually ask you provi- to provide a cash flow statement and, and a projection for that following year, even if you have off-farm jobs. Because a lot of times if banks will see that off-farm job, they go, well, they'll pay for it that way. And, and we're more geared to agriculture. And so yeah, you we want to see them, the farm succeed. We want to see that. Uh, You're not just looking at, do they currently make enough money at their other jobs right. to be able to pay these payments? Right. The, the goal of the program is to expand agriculture. You want to see the farm plan work so that they can maybe start cutting back on some of that out, outside income because they're actually making income on their farming operation. Right. And I think most of the goals of a uh, a two-income family that come to me is to drop the income of one of the partners and have them be 100% into the production. And, you know, that that takes time. Oh, yeah. That's all we have time for today. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, Kathleen. It's been really great to talk to you. Well, I've enjoyed it. That was FSA Loan Officer Kathleen Walters. Please visit the Earth Eats website to learn more about Brett and Lauren's farm dreams, the history of racial discrimination in farm lending, and about applying for FSA loans. Find us at eartheats.org. The Earth Eats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, 
Taylor Killow, Josephine McRobbie, the IU Food Institute, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Adrian Lipscomb, Kathleen Walters, Lauren McAllister, and Brett Volpe. Production support comes from Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive home, auto, business, and life coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at BillRushInsurance.com. Thank you.